This is a very funny story, and this has to do with a fake, with alteration forgery. There is a notorious libertine by the name of William Sykes, who is an interesting forger because he found this painting, which is now at the um, National Gallery of Ireland, and it's now entitled The Enthronement of St. Romold as Bishop of Dublin. But at the time, it was an anonymous 15th century Flemish painting, and no one knew what the subject was. And William Sykes acquired this legally, and he changed three things about it that would increase its value. Which three things might he have added to it or changed from it that would increase the value of this already authentic painting? Well, one thing he did was he added a signature to the back of it. And in the 18th century, more valuable than any other artist was the work of Jan van Eyck. He was sold for more than Raphael, for more than Michelangelo at the time. So the best thing that he could do was try to convince people that this authentic um, 15th century Flemish painting was a lost Van Eyck. The next thing he did was try to make it a subject matter that would be of greater interest to British collectors. So he wrote on the back something that not only gave the subject matter, but also invented a history to it, a provenance that would also increase its value. Like I mentioned, a necklace that had been owned by Audrey Hepburn is more valuable than the exact same necklace that had just been purchased from a store and had never been owned by anyone illustrious. So, William Sykes wrote on the back of this authentic painting that it was painted by Jan van Eyck. It was a gift to King Henry V of England, and it was a picture of St. Thomas Becket. He thereby increased the value, and he managed to sell it to the Duke of Devonshire for an outrageous sum. Um, and it was only in the 20th century that the um, edition that he had made was revealed as a late edition, and it's now considered anonymous with this um, slightly less exciting saint depicted in it. Wolfgang Kufner is another Durer forger. He made a Durer self-portrait um, in 1799, um, and it was actually hung in the Nuremberg Town Hall until someone noticed that there was another Durer self-portrait in another collection, and this couldn't possibly be the same painting. Literary forgeries is not something I'm going to go into, but I just wanted to point out that it is another, sort of the series for another lecture, but you have William Henry Ireland, who's the British forger of the famous Shakespeare papers. Literary forgeries have the same uh, rationale, the same motivation, and the same psychological profiling that we'll talk about in a moment of these other artistic forgers that we're discussing. Reinhold Vosters um, has a very rich collection at the Victoria and Albert Museum um, of works that were purchased accidentally because um, the people who purchased them believed that they were authentic um, Renaissance drawings and authentic Renaissance jewelry, when in fact, in 1979, more than 1,000 drawings from Vosters' workshop was found in the V&A, and it's not entirely clear at what point they were acquired, but they're still in the collection. They were sold as Renaissance drawings for <coughs> Renaissance jewelry pieces, when in fact they were created in the 19th century. And here both the preparatory drawings and the pieces themselves were sold as Renaissance pieces. Also at the V&A is this wonderful bust by Giovanni Bastianini. Um, it's meant to look like an early Renaissance uh, bust of Aloysius Strozzi, but in fact it was created in the 19th century. 
This one is interesting because there was no motivation here to do with finances. This is a Romanian fellow, Bogdan Petrisesiu. I'm terrible with this pronunciation. Petrisesiu Hazdeu. He was a brilliant scholar of the Romanian language, and he was responsible for the forgery of a linguistic and archaeological discovery of sorts, the so-called Dacian lead plates. There were 200 of these fake lead plates that were um, produced, believe it or not, in a nail factory in 1875 in order to provide physical evidence to support the nascent Romanian nationalism that would rise in the 1880s. And this was essentially his invention to raise his status as a scholar, a linguistic scholar, and to promote this nascent Romanian nationalism that would rise afterwards. It was a physical manifestation of the idea that was rising, and it was not motivated by profit. Eugene Bobin was a French forger who most famously forged Aztec crystal skulls, um, which you may be familiar with with the last Indiana Jones film. At the Louvre, the so-called tiara of Saitafarnes was bought as a circa 3rd century artifact and is in fact circa 1910, produced by um, these Israeli family. Alceo Dosena is a very famous forger as well whose collection um, is represented in the Victorian Albert Museum. He forged um, Renaissance and Gothic sculpture in a variety of media, and he's an example of an incredibly skillful forger whose work became more valuable than the work that he forged. This happens on some occasions, particularly if someone doesn't try to copy the work of an individual artist. And of course, you can imagine that a forger copying an existing work of art That's not a very good idea, especially in the internet age. Anyone can say, well, this is actually hanging in this museum. There's no way that this can be the original. But the best forgers will choose a work of art in the style of a renowned artist, or, as we'll get to in a moment, they'll choose a work of art that matches a known lost work by a famous artist for which the provenance already exists. And they're creating something to fill the void of that lost object. But in Dosena's case, he was creating works of significant skill that eventually became collector's items in and of themselves. Also, Icilio Federico Ioni is a very famous character. He wrote um, a memoir that was published in 1936 called Affairs of a Painter. And the funny story is a consortium of art dealers got together and offered him a bribe to not publish it. Because in it, it revealed who he tricked. And among his illustrious victims was Bernard Berenson. Bernard Berenson bought one of his, um, one of his panels. Uh, it's not one of these, it's a different one. Um, thinking it was an original. And Bernard Berenson brought it home, and he lived with it for a short time until he realized that he had been fooled. And he was so impressed that someone had managed to fool him that he sought out Yoni, who was living in Siena, and confronted him, and the two became friends. And occasionally thereafter, Yoni planted one of his forgeries in some remote church and had someone mention it to Berenson as a tip that there was an interesting artwork that he should go and check out. And it was a game between the two of them. There was sort of duel between master forger and master connoisseur. There was an exhibit of Yoni's work, um, incidentally, in Italy not too long ago, and it's absolutely exceptional. You cannot tell the difference with the naked eye. Um, He's an incredibly skillful artist. 
This fellow is relevant to the book you see on this table here. Jeff van der Wecken was a Belgian surrealist painter, uh, conservator for um, the Royal Gallery in Brussels, and he may or may not have been involved in one of the seven thefts of the Ghent altarpiece. In 1934, one of the 12 original panels from the Ghent altarpiece, which is referred to as the Righteous Judges, was stolen in the night. I don't want to get too far off into the story, but there was an absolutely comical and, and entertaining series of ransom demands made by the thieves to the bishopric of Ghent. And there were no leads on the part of the police. And the police investigation was actually um, very odd and smacked to many of conspiracy because there was, um, right from the start, there was some ineptitude that seemed too ridiculous to be um, anything but a conspiracy on the part of the police. The police showed up at the crime scene late because they had been investigating another theft that took place the same night across the street at a cheese shop. And someone had lifted some cheese. And the police, they checked out the Ghent altarpiece. They saw the panel was missing. Um, They had gotten there very late, and a crowd of people had rushed into the chapel that housed the altarpiece and ruined any evidence that was present. And the police decided that, given the circumstances, they should return to the cheese shop to resume the investigation because it was more pertinent. Um, A few years passed with no leads. And then a plump, middle-aged stockbroker collapsed at a political rally in a suburb of Ghent. And he was taken to his brother-in-law's house. And he called for his lawyer. And the lawyer came into the room in which he was lying. And they spent 15 minutes together. And then the lawyer walked out, pale and shaking, because his client had just died. And he said, the last words of his client were, I am the last man on earth who knows the hiding place of the lost judge's panel. And then with perfect operatic timing, he died. (laughs) The investigation was uh, labyrinthine, to say the least. But the end result is that the panel was never found. Um, The case was filed, but it was not solved. Um, And in 1938, there was another ransom demand that came after the death of the person who claimed responsibility for the crime. And the Prime Minister of Belgium received the ransom demand and immediately turned it down. He said, we do not negotiate with criminals. We're not in America. Soon after, Jeff van der Wecken began painting an exact copy of the lost judges panel. And this is a close-up of the copy. He used what he said was a 17th century cupboard door. And for those who saw it, they said it was um, indistinguishable from the original, except for some changes he made. He made three changes. He had one character who here, this character was facing in profile, and he had him turn towards the viewer. He gave him also the facial expressions of the Belgian King Leopold, who had died in a strange hiking accident in 1934, the same year of the theft, and he added a ring to one of the fingers. He also wrote on the back this rhyming quatrain in Flemish, and it's very difficult to translate, but it says roughly, I did it for duty and for love and for vengeance. Sly strokes have not disappeared. And he refused to explain why he put this there or what it meant. In 1945, he gave this panel to the Cathedral of St. Bavo in Ghent. 
1950, it was officially purchased by the government and put in display with the rest of the Gandalter piece. So if you go to Ghent today, you see 11 twelfths of the Van Eyck original and one panel by Van der Vecken. However, in 1974, uh, a conservator whose job it was to clean the Gandalter piece every year showed up for work after decades on the job, and in 1974, he did a double take. All of a sudden, he was certain that the Righteous Judges panel had aged by about 500 years in the last 12 months. The crackler on the surface looked exactly like the rest of the painting, and he thought he could see Pentimenti, an underpainting, ghosting through. His theory was that von der Vecken, who by now had passed away, had been involved in the 1934 theft, and when their second ransom demand failed, had painted over the stolen panel in order to surreptitiously reinsert it in the altarpiece. That may seem far-fetched, but that was the theory at the time. That was still the theory until a few months ago when the Getty Research Institute, their conservation department, and the Belgian government um, did an elaborate cleaning of the Ghent altarpiece for the first time um, in years and an elaborate analysis. And actually, after this book came out, um, I spoke to the chief conservator, and it turns out that this, in fact, is the copy. It is not the stolen original which closes one mystery, but opens another, because the stolen original panel is still missing. The best guess is that it's actually hidden somewhere on the premises of St. Baba Cathedral, and there's very much an open investigation um, to try to find it. So it is an open-ended story, but I'm able to give you this little coda that in this book ends with the cliffhanger is maybe it's actually intact, and, um, and it in fact is not. But um, it's still out there, and it's one of the great unsolved mysteries of the art world. But van der Vecken um, was a renowned forger as well as conservator. And in fact, there was an exhibit called Fake or Not Fake at the Groningen Museum a few years ago showing only van der Vecken paintings. And he was a conservator who had such a heavy hand in restoration that there's more van der Vecken than original 15th century Flemish in most of the things that he touched up. He also painted a fake Hans Memling, which he sold to Hermann Göring during the Second World War. And in the Netherlands at the time, that was an act of high treason punishable by death. And he managed to get away with it by being able to prove that it was in fact a forgery he made, not a piece of Dutch national patrimony. But um, someone else on this list, Han van Michren, was actually put on trial and had to prove that he had forged a Vermeer painting and his life was on the line. The Wacker family, and you see Otto Wacker here, are renowned for um, having created as a family at least 33 fake Van Gogh paintings. But they went to the unadvised um, length of bringing a lawsuit themselves against a Van Gogh expert for defamation for having said that some of the Van Goghs in their family collection were fake. The result was that they went on trial. There were a series of trials in which world Van Gogh experts dueled with each other because those who thought they were authentic had their reputations on the line. Um, And in fact, it was proven that there were forgeries based on the lawsuit that they in fact had brought themselves. Um, And he served time in prison, but his entire family was involved in Van Gogh forgeries. Here's Han van Meeren. He was an absolutely terrible pseudo-erotic surrealist painter in his original artworks. 
but he was a very clever forger, at least mechanically. He famously forged several Vermeer paintings, one of which he traded to Hermann Göring for over 100 authentic post-impressionist paintings that were considered worthless and degenerate by the Nazis. The problem was, he was brought to trial at the end of the war because everyone in the world, all the Vermeer experts in the world, thought that the Vermeer he had sold was an original. Not only was it original, but it was one of the best works that Vermeer ever made from his early religious phase. Now, today, this doesn't look anything like a Vermeer to me, but it fooled all of the experts at the time, and there's a very interesting trial um, where these experts testified why they thought this was authentic. No one believed him that it was not authentic. So even when he explained his entire process, how he baked the painting in an oven to get the crackler to look right, they still didn't believe him. So in his prison cell, he was obliged to paint another Vermeer. So there are strange photographs of him behind bars. A few other examples. Elmir de Hori, you may know from an Orson Welles um, pseudo-documentary called F for Fake. He was Time's Man of the Year. Um, and he created, um, he was Hungarian, he created at least a thousand works, he claimed, of mostly modern art, especially Chagall, Matisse, Modigliani, and Picasso. Lothar Malskat and his colleague Dietrich Fay are interesting characters. Malskat was a German master forger, and he claims to have created around 2,000 fakes in the styles of at least 71 different artists. He claimed that it took him only one day to create most of his fake paintings that would fool experts, and he and Fay were caught when they were commissioned as restorers to restore the frescoes at Marienkirch in Lübeck, Germany. And they wouldn't let anyone in to see the restoration process. And when they finished, they revealed it at a press conference. And people thought it was absolutely miraculous um, that they had also uncovered hitherto unknown medieval frescoes from the church. It was such a big discovery that the German government printed two million postage stamps with the newly discovered frescoes on them. And it was only after they had printed the postage stamp that Moscott's hubris and... um, And desire for a claim got the better of him, and he announced and then proved that these were new frescoes that he and Faye had painted. Tom Keating, you may recall from a 1976 Channel 4 television series. Tom Keating is a a lovable master forger um, who painted British old masters, um, and his most famous work was actually a constable. He painted the Haywain, but he painted it as the mirror reflection of the original. Um, And he sold, uh, he claimed hundreds of forgeries, he claimed that he painted over 2,000 by more than 100 different artists. Um, And after he got out of prison, he wrote a book, and he also became the star of this television series, which you see here, where he taught young art students how to paint in the style of old masters. Anthony Pichot um, is known as the other Dali. Salvador Dali's creative powers dried up in the last decades of his life, but at the same time, his productivity increased. You may have heard the story that um, he was so uh, avaricious that he was frantically signing anything he could get his hands on because he got about $5 at the time for every autograph, and he was signing napkins, you name it, until his hand cramped up, and then he needed someone else to sign for him 
but he also needed someone else to paint for him. And he had a protege called Antony Picha, um, who he referred to as the other Dali, who lived in his home and painted Dali originals, which were signed by Dali at the end of his life. And Dali himself, towards the end of his life, could not distinguish between what Pichat had painted and what he had painted himself. And there's a very interesting book about this by uh, a fellow art crime author, a Belgian, called Stan Lorison's, that was a bestseller. Um, because Stan Lorison's was uh, a career um, gallery owner who sold and made a livelihood out of selling fake Dali prints. And then he met Dali at the end of his life. And Al Pacino is making a film out of his story, and he's playing Dali. Um, Dali was famously, of course, eccentric. Um, he was been involved in perhaps too many mind-altering substances, and there was one time when another forger brought a painting that he had forged in Dali's style and said to Dali, I just bought this from a gallery, but I noticed you forgot to sign it. Would you sign it for me? And Dali said, ah, yes, I remember painting this and signed it for him right there. <laughs> I'll just wind up with a few more examples. Very famous British forger Eric Heburn is a graduate of London's Royal Academy of Art, and he claims to have produced approximately 1,000 old master drawings, uh, especially by Rubens, Raphael, Van Dyck, which you see here, Poussin, and Tiepolo. Um, these drawings were sold by noted auction houses to numerous prestigious collections, including the Getty. Um, Eric Heburn claims that he began his career when he brought an authentic drawing that he thought was an old master, but he wasn't sure about it when he was young, to Colnaghi Gallery in London. And they said, well, this is okay. It's probably worth a few hundred pounds. We'll buy it from you, and then we'll see if we can find a buyer for it. And about a week later, he saw it in the window for many thousands of pounds, the same drawing. And he decided to get revenge against first Colnaghi Gallery by selling them his own forgeries, but then against the art world in general, extrapolating, as is a common characteristic among forgers, that somehow the art world collectively um, dismissed their original works or deceived them in some way, and that they're going to take a passive-aggressive revenge against that community as a whole by integrating their forgeries. Um, there's an article in the Journal of Art Crime, Arca's publication, about Heburn's Van Dyck um, drawing forgeries, and you see two examples of them here. Heburn loved his celebrity. He wrote a couple of memoirs. One is called The Forger's Handbook, and it teaches you how to forge just the way he did. And it's a very interesting read. He was mysteriously murdered in Rome. It's another one of the mysteries of the world of art forgery um, sometime later. Not to go into literary forgeries, but um, Conrad Kujau um, is responsible for the Hitler diary forgeries. Um, and his daughter... Uh, is depicted here, and it's an ongoing issue in Germany still to this day. It really strikes a raw nerve. Gert Jan Janssen um, has been called the most prolific forger in history, and in a moment, and, and Vernon will focus on the most diverse forger in history. But Janssen earned at least $12 million, which is what was seized from his Swiss bank accounts, and he was the owner of at least three false identities, and when the police burst into his studio, which was in a castle he owned in the Netherlands, they found 1,600 forged paintings, primarily in the style of post-impressionists like Matisse and Dufy. And, of course, Picasso, who is the most frequently forged and the most frequently stolen artist in history. 
And at the end of our story, we have a couple of examples of the provenance traps I mentioned before. John Myatt, you may have heard of, um, was a painter, uh, and his accomplice, who was a con man by the name of John Drew, you see here. And very briefly, because Vernon's going to touch on this case, um, John Myatt was an unsuccessful painter of original works. Um, he began to advertise that he could paint in the style of renowned artists. If you'd like something in the style of Monet, you couldn't afford one yourself. And he wasn't having much success. And then he was contacted by John Drew, who is really the person who is the mastermind behind the forgery scheme. And John Drew bought one of Myatt's works and then called him up sometime later saying, you realize I just sold one of your works as an original and made a lot of money. And the two of them began working together. However, John Myatt was a skillful painter, but he didn't bother with any technical details. He painted... Um, a lot of works that would have originally been painted in oil, in acrylic, or other household paints. But no one looked in great detail at the works themselves because the provenance was so good. And the provenance was good because the two of them forged provenance and inserted it into real archives. So that when a scholar had this, for instance, this painting in the style of Miro, when they had it before them, they would do what an art historian is trained to do, which is go to the archives to look up, is this a painting that existed? And they would find, perhaps on a page that was stuck together somehow, that they had never noticed before when they visited the archives, a piece of provenance that said that this is a real painting. This is problematic not only because it led to this deception, but it also means that real archives are tampered with, and our great-great-grandchildren will refer to tampered archives as if it's historical fact. So it really damages the historical record. Myatt went to prison briefly, came out, and George Clooney bought the rights to make his life story as a film. And you can now buy paintings by him that are, he calls genuine fakes, which are signed by him, but in the style of famous artists. Um, and so he's doing quite well. And this is actually a theme that forgers go to prison, get out, and they're celebrities. And um, you can sell their own works for six figures that they now sign with their original name because they've made celebrities to themselves. This handsome fellow here you'll hear in a moment. Um, this is the Greenhalgh case, which I will leave for Vernon to discuss, but just to give you a little preview. This is Vernon um, in, in the infamous garden shed in which um, uh, many of the forgeries by the Greenhalgh family were created. The Greenhalgh family used a different type of provenance trap. They found authentic provenance for lost works and then created works to match it. And I'll leave it at that because Vernon will speak more of it. And the last version of the provenance trap, which I would like to end with, um, is related to a New York dealer called Eli Sakai. He had the third variation on the provenance trap, which is this. He would buy an authentic work, usually by impressionists, then he would have a team of Chinese copyists make an exact copy of the work he bought. And then he would use the real provenance that came with the authentic work he had purchased to sell the new copy. So these are three versions of the provenance trap and three clever confidence tricks used by these forgers to pull the wool over the eyes of the art industry. The last person I would discuss is Peter Paul Biro. Um, he has a firm that you can hire to use technological and scientific forensic um, 
investigation to try to determine authenticity. And he's best known for two cases. One is the authentication of a Jackson Pollock painting that someone found at a flea market in the U.S. And the other is this drawing purported to be by Leonardo. His modus operandi was to locate fingerprints in works of art and match them to fingerprints on acknowledged authentic works of art by the artist in question, in this case Leonardo or Jackson Pollock. The problem is that it came to light only recently that he was inserting fingerprints into these works. And in fact, his entire family had been forging art for more than one generation. There's a tendency to rely on technology, particularly if it's somehow elusive and Biro was using proprietary technology, machines that he had developed himself. And the assumption was that, that we wouldn't understand it, but technology is going to solve our problems for us. And in this case, he um, used it to take advantage of his victims. Um, just to end, what are some of the things that we can say about these sort of 20 or so master forgers that we've discussed now? Well, there's some things that we can pick up just at this very basic introduction that I've given you today. One is that the use of uh, confidence trick, particularly the provenance traps that I mentioned, these three different types, is what really makes a forgery successful. It's more important than the skill of the forger. If the provenance looks good, particularly in this day and age, most people won't look too hard at the work itself and may authenticate something that really should be an oil that's painted in acrylic because the provenance looks good. The knowledge that the criminals have is this non-malevolent wishful thinking and enthusiasm that we might call the treasure hunt instinct that we all have that as an art historian, if you're sitting in your office and you receive um, a visit from someone who claims to have um, a work of art, maybe they're not really sure where it's from. They don't actually say that this is a lost Leonardo drawing, but they present it to you and give you just enough of a clue to lead you to the source of provenance that they have used to create their own work and allow you to follow the trail, to complete the treasure hunt. And Vernon will give some concrete examples of that with the Greenhalgh case. But they're really allowing the art experts to step into this bear trap that has been laid out for them and to bring about their own scholarly demise in the sense that they're falling for something based on their own unbridled enthusiasm for discovering a lost masterpiece, which is, of course, frankly, what all art historians would love to do. We can also say that most master forgers that we know of in history enjoy the notoriety and go on to public careers afterwards. They seem to all claim that they've created about a thousand forgeries. That's um, a, a number that probably we shouldn't take too seriously, but that's the claim that many of them make. They often will write their memoirs afterwards. They will often um, help police after the fact and revel in the fact that they are now considered an expert, whereas before they created forgeries, their works were dismissed. The primary motivation that leads forgers to turn to forgery as opposed to another line of work is almost never money. Money is a secondary instigation. What they're interested in, for the most part, is a sort of passive-aggressive revenge at the collective art world that they feel has done them wrong. And they're going to get that revenge in two ways. They're going to prove that they are as good or better than great painters 
who are admired by the art world by creating works that are thought to be by those painters. And then they will pull the wool over the art world's eyes by passing off these forgeries, thereby playing this essential practical joke on the art trade as a whole. I think I will leave it there because I'm just about at my 45-minute mark. Um, but if you're interested in the story of the Ghent altarpiece, the book's available afterwards. If you're interested in learning more about ARCA or about the study of art crime, please visit our website. And thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you.